morning. I invite everyone to turn with me to the book of Malachi. We're going to be in Malachi chapter 2, right at the end of chapter 2, verse 17, on through chapter 3, 5. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's on page 802. In fact, if you're using most editions of the ESV, regardless of the size, that'll be on page 802. And it's the last book in the Old Testament, right before the Gospel of Matthew, about three-fourths of the way through your Bible. We're actually uh, continuing an intermittent sermon series that we are doing through the book of Malachi. We are now, this will be Sermon 5 through this book. And so I invite you to turn your way there. And while you're doing that, let me just go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we do ask now that as we return to Malachi and consider the words uh, of this prophet, that you would open our ears to hear, that we would respond uh, in faith. We ask that you would purify us, not consume us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're just joining us, if it's been a while since you've uh, read the book of Malachi, we'll, we'll do a bit of a recap. You remember that this book is, in fact, the last prophetic book that we have uh, in the timeline before the coming of Christ. The oracles in this book came to the people of Judah at a time when they were back in the land after the exile, They had rebuilt the temple at this point, and they had reestablished the priesthood, but their relationship with God was not truly restored. In Malachi, we've seen this series of disputations. God makes a statement, uh, then we see the people's heart's rejection of that statement, and then God responds to their rejection. God says, I have loved you, and the people say, well, how have you loved us? God says, you have despised my name. The people say, how have we despised your name? And back and forth, back and forth. And in the process, we have seen that the main issue in Malachi is ultimately God's glory. Remember how often what was at the heart of God's specific indictments or promises or intended plans. It was his name being magnified and honored. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. That was God's final act of love. He was going to open their eyes to be able to see and praise. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. That was God's summary indictment. You despise my name. You do not honor or fear me. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name, a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Those were the the reasons given for why the people's lackluster worship was so bad. It was a poor testimony to God's glory, which he purposed to be recognized by all the nations. Israel was being a bad witness. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, the turnaround that God ultimately wants is described as give honor to my name. Describing The Levitical priesthood, my covenant with him, with Levi, was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. 
the ideal old covenant priest is described as one that fears God and who honors his name, who stands in awe of his name. So it's pretty clear. I mean, this idea has been repeated so many times in such a short span that when you read the book, beginning to end, you can't really miss it if you tried. I mean, I know this is week five for us through Malachi, but if you actually look at it, we've covered a really small portion of text, barely more than a page. You can't read it and miss what's at the heart over and over. God cares about his honor and glory. The people weren't glorifying God. And not, remember, not by worshiping false gods. They weren't being open pagans or atheists. They were still worshiping Yahweh in form. And it was in their worship that they were actually failing to honor and glorify God. You could go to temple, offer sacrifices, and only pray to Yahweh and still be guilty of despising his name. God opened the whole book by declaring his love. I have loved you. And the reality is that despite their lip service, despite their outward actions, the people weren't loving God. They were despising him. They were despising him with their costless worship. They were bringing animals that were lame or sick or that they found dead already. The priests were despising God by rubber stamping the people's worship. The priests were supposed to teach the people. But instead, they showed partiality to the people with their lame sacrifices because it was beneficial to the priest to do so. It's good to have the people's favor. You don't want to call them out. They were despising God by being totally unfaithful in their ethical relationships to each other. Remember, particularly marriage. And then they were still showing up to worship. And we saw that in God's eyes, the sacrifice of an adulterer is just gore at that point. It might as well have stood there covered in blood after a murder. Better for you not to offer a sacrifice at all than to be defiantly and confidently unfaithful to your wife and then show up with a heifer at the temple. And so we come to our passage this morning, another disputation. God says one thing, the people challenge it, and God responds. But we also, what we also have here is a hinge. This passage connects the first half of the book and its predominantly negative tone with the latter part of the book and the hope of salvation, hearkening all the way back to how God promised to love the people. Your own eyes shall see, you will say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. The last three texts that we've looked at have been weighted to focusing on the Israelites' actions, everything they're doing wrong. Now God is going to focus on his response, the future actions that he's going to take. So let's read this together, and I invite you to to keep uh, Malachi open the entire time. Keep your eyes on the text uh, as we preach through it this morning. Let's read it all together. Malachi 2.17, going through 3.5. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. 
They will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk through this passage. It's, it's relatively straightforward on the surface, but as you get a little deeper, uh, there starts to become a lot to untangle. I probably spent more time biting my lip and asking, what are you trying to say here, than I have in any other text in Malachi. So we're going to walk through the text carefully. We'll do it together. Keep your Bibles open, eyes on the page. And then by the end... Uh, hopefully we should find ourselves with one big pressing question hanging over us. So we'll close by considering that question. We'll ask it and we'll answer it. So we'll look at the text, then ask one big question, then we'll answer it. So let's go back to that opening disputation in 2.17 that kicks off the whole thing. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the justice of God? Here's the charge. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Now, what is it exactly that the people are saying that is wearying God? What is the specific charge against them? Because the first thing we see in the text can actually have two uh, different meanings. They're saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. That could mean they were giving moral approval to evil. Right? They were taking things that were actually evil and then saying, well, that's not evil. That's okay. God actually likes that. We, we saw that idea in Isaiah where God warns, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Right? That's, that's one option for understanding what you see there. But also, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them can also be a complaint about God's inaction, meaning God doesn't seem to care about evil. Evil people must be good in his sight. He delights in them because things go so well for them. They don't face justice. Sort of like in the book of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah laments, why does the way of the wicked prosper? So which is it? What is their exact sin that is wearying the Lord? Are they falsely baptizing evil and calling it good? Or are they saying God is lazy and does not seem to care about evil? I mean, we know they're at least guilty of both types of sin. We already saw how the priests gave approval to sacrifices and other behaviors that were clearly condemned in the law, and they did this self-servingly. They sinned by saying, yeah, God is okay with that. Actually, he likes it. So we know that they were saying that kind of stuff. But when we take into account the way that God answers in chapter 3, and in fact the whole rest of the following context, the emphasis in our text is probably on the idea of complaint, the people complaining. That's what God is indicting in 2.17. In fact, just a few verses down in Malachi 3, we hear this parallel charge. You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? What do we gain from this? Now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. And this dovetails with what we see at the end of our verse in 2.17. Where is the justice of God? The people were complaining 
about a lack of God's justice. Yahweh is ignoring evil. But wait, haven't, haven't we already seen in Malachi that the people themselves were committing tons of evil without any remorse? I mean, the picture of these people is not of, a, of paragons of virtue, you know, suffering in the midst of an evil world, waiting desperately for the justice of God. But here they're complaining, where is your justice? So how do we think about this? Are, are, are the people lackadaisical about morality, or are they desperately waiting for the justice of God? You have to feel the flow of the whole book, right? Here, here's the logic of how we get to verse two, or chapter 2, verse 17 in a nutshell. Yahweh's name is not being honored. The people are failing to be good witnesses. They were offering costless, half-hearted worship. The priests weren't doing anything about it. The people were faithless to each other, divorcing their wives, flippantly marrying pagan wives without batting an eye. They excused it. And then when they were confronted, they snorted. I mean, earlier we read in response to the indictments, but you say, what weariness is this? You snort at it. So they were doing all this evil, they were excusing it, and when really pressed, when confronted with the prophetic word of Yahweh exposing it, they were exacerbatedly asking, what's the point of strictly following the law anyway? You say God cares about our worship and our marriages, but look at everything else that everyone gets away with. Where is God's justice? It is vain to serve God. I mean, what do we gain by keeping his charge or walking as in mourning, taking it so seriously that we suffer? before the Lord of hosts. In other words, why take this all so seriously? It doesn't benefit us. God isn't just. This is the classic, uh, well, what about you defense? Malachi confronts the people about their sin against God, and they're like, oh yeah, well, what about God? And this is wearying Yahweh, Lord of hosts, which does not mean that God is getting weak or tired. It means God is not going to put up with it much longer. If something makes you weary, you stop doing it. Listening to the people's self-serving complaints is wearying God, as in God is not going to allow these complaints to continue much longer. In the rest of our passage, verse, uh, Chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, really the rest of the whole book, but we're just looking at 1 through 5 today, is a preview of how God is going to respond to this complaining. This is big because it's the first explicit glimpse of salvation since back, back in chapter 1, verse 5. It has the most explicit depictions of judgment. What was hinted at earlier in Malachi is now going to be developed. So look again, we're moving on to chapter 3, verse 1. This is how God responds. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. In this first verse, there's, there's a lot to untangle. Right off the back, you have this issue of the identity of my messenger. This is even more tricky than you might initially realize, and there are at least three puzzle pieces that we need to put together. Number one, you have, you've ac we've actually encountered this exact language before. Your ESV should give you a footnote back on chapter 1, verse 1, letting you know that Malachi means my messenger. In fact, people debate whether Malachi is a name at all. Maybe chapter 1, verse 1 should read, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by my messenger. Most people take it as a name in chapter 1 because they argue we would expect it to say his messenger, 
not my messenger. So my messenger must be a name. But if that's the case, then maybe here in 3.1, it should say, Behold, I send Malachi, and he will prepare the way before me. The point is, it's ambiguous. Is it Malachi? Is this book the messenger? How do we under, understand this? So we've so we got some ambiguity there. Number two, you, you wonder whether this is talking about a human or a spirit messenger. The word that we, we translate there, underline messenger, we also translate as angel. I don't need to give you any examples because every single time you encounter the word angel in your English Bible, it is this word. In the Old Testament, angels are spirit messengers. We have no other word for them other than messenger. In fact, Malachi 3.1 sounds a lot like Exodus 23.20. Behold, I send an angel before you or a messenger before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I've prepared. So is this a human or an angel in Malachi 3.1? Does it, does it matter? And then number three, there seems to be two different messengers referred to in the same verse. My messenger who prepares the way before me is distinguished from the messenger of the covenant. If you follow closely, right, the, the speaker is Yahweh. Got that explicitly. My messenger at the beginning is Yahweh's messenger. Most readers distinguish this messenger from Yahweh himself because, right, Yahweh sends the messenger ahead of himself to prepare the way. Okay, logical, easy. And this messenger is distinguished from the Lord in the very next part, right? We recognize the Lord is Yahweh. And we say, okay, well, duh. But we, you do note, right? And as Tim mentioned, whenever we see Lord in all caps in your Bible, it's actually God's name. It's just our English convention of avoiding putting his name in print. But you'll note here that Lord is not in all caps, meaning this isn't the divine name. You know it gets confusing because of our English convention. But here it's just actually the common word for Lord, master, ruler, someone who's in charge of things. So some people ask, who is this Lord? Why does it not say Yahweh? Or why doesn't God speak in the first person if God is talking about himself? But we recognize that it is still Yahweh being talked about because this Lord comes to his temple. The temple belongs to God. Only Yahweh would be described as the owner of the temple. And it's actually common for God to speak in the third person about himself in the prophets and actually in scripture in general. There's no problem there. So we have the messenger of Yahweh who's going ahead of him. And we have Yahweh himself who is identified, who is called the master of the temple, the owner of the temple, the Lord of the temple. And he's coming after. But then we have this, this third description, right? We have the messenger of the covenant. Who's this? Is he one of the first two? Is this a, th a third figure? Well, based on the parallel between the last two descriptions, right? The Lord coming, whom you seek. The messenger coming, in whom you delight. And giving what those phrases mean, which we'll get to in a second, most interpreters, most readers, see the messenger of the covenant as another description of the Lord and master of the temple, right? This, we're referring to the same person, Yahweh himself. Maybe you followed all that, maybe you didn't. But in the end, we have two figures in this text. The messenger of Yahweh going ahead of Yahweh to prepare the way. And Yahweh himself coming after. And he is described as Lord of the temple and messenger of the covenant or angel of the covenant. So why all this confusing language? Like, why say it this way? Let, let, let's put the pieces together. Why does he talk like this? What's, what's being said? God is going to send ahead of himself a messenger. And the reason for choosing this ambiguous way of talking that could be taken as Malachi's name or uh, it's, it's, it's because the mess this messenger could be the prophet himself. 
Or we should say in one sense, it is Malachi, but not only Malachi. Right? This is the prophetic pattern. God sends prophets, human messengers, ahead of himself to prepare his people for his coming. Malachi was the last of these prophetic messengers until John the Baptist, the final prophet before Jesus. John the Baptist was fulfilling this prophecy. We're explicitly told in the Gospels that John was the messenger sent ahead of Yahweh, preparing the way, fulfilling this promise in Malachi and the parallel promise in Isaiah of a voice in the wilderness, preparing the way. John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the prophet, he fits this prophetic pattern, sent ahead to prepare the way. Remember, how did John do it? How how do the Gospels summarize John's preaching? We don't know much of the details of John's preaching. But what we do know is that John preached repentance. He called people to recognize their sins. He called people out on their sins. That is the prophetic preparatory ministry. It's what Malachi is doing in this book. In fact, next week he's actually going to use the language of repentance. But more on that next week. God sent Malachi as he had sent all his messengers up to that point and then eventually culminating in John the Baptist, the one last preparatory messenger to call out people's sin in preparation for his coming. He sends his messenger ahead of himself with a message calling out sin, a message of repentance. Turn from your sin. Recognize your sin. But God himself, as we saw, is also identified as the messenger or the angel of the covenant. Because, in fact, Yahweh has often appeared to his people by means of the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh. In in the Old Testament, there is a singular being described as the angel, right? Not an angel, but the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord is so closely identified with the Lord that the lines between them become blurry in most texts. People commonly recognize this, right? God can switch between speaking of the angel in the third person and then himself in the third person in the same text. The angel can switch between speaking of God in the third person and then speaking as God in the first person in the same text. We can't keep up with who is who. That's intentional. Yahweh and the angel of Yahweh are one. And the angel of Yahweh was always somehow physically manifested to his people. Right? He's in human form or as fire or cloud or an audible voice. This is God coming in a different way than just his ordinary presence. God is present in all things. God is omnipresent, present everywhere. But the angel of the Lord appeared locally in visible ways. By saying the angel of the covenant, God is making clear, I'm coming in a direct way. In a localized way, I'm going to show up. Not through secondary causes like controlling history in such a way that at the end you would say, oh yeah, God was present in this. No, God is saying, I'm coming. My angel, me, in the flesh, we might say. We should say. John the Baptist made it clear that he was the forerunner of Jesus Christ, Lord of the temple, God in the flesh. The purpose of using the messenger of the covenant, the angel of the covenant language, was to highlight the special way that God was going to come to his people. Manifested, visible, tangible. And that's exactly what he did in Jesus Christ. And let's not forget the other description of Yahweh slash Jesus in our verse. He is the Lord, the owner of the temple. Why refer to him with this word ruler, master, instead of his name? 
What's going on here is a bit of sarcasm. Remember, this entire time, the people were professing to love God, to follow him. They were still going to temple. They were still worshiping, still participating in corporate, public, official worship. But it was empty. They were actually despising God's name. And so God describes himself as the Lord, master whom you seek, and the angel of the covenant in whom you delight. That's biting sarcasm. The master you claim to want with your words, the angel, the presence of God that you supposedly delight to be near, he's coming. It's kind of like when my three-year-old Shadrach brings me a snack that I, or a treat that I know his mother has purchased for a special time. And I say, are you sure you're supposed to have this? Did mom give you permission to have this? And he said, yes. And I say, if I ask her, Will she say yes? And he says, yes. And I say, let's call her. No. (laughs) The master whom you seek, the angel in whom you delight, he's coming. And Malachi, this language is meant to be convicting and frightening. Malachi brings it home in verses 2 through 5. You claim you want this master. You supposedly delight in his presence, but he's coming. And who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? You don't really want him to come. You won't survive his coming. Who can endure? Who can stand? This is the prophetic ministry. This is Malachi's ministry. This was John the Baptist's ministry to prepare for the Lord's coming by warning people of the twofold nature of his coming. Not everyone is going to endure it, not everyone is going to stand. Yahweh is going to do two parallel things when he comes. He's going to refine and he is going to destroy. In the same breath, Yahweh's coming means purification and destruction. Jesus' coming means salvation and destruction. And let's see how this is unfolded for us in the rest of our text. So look again back at verses 2 through 4. He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. God will refine his people so that the end result is righteous offerings, true worship, worship that no longer despises his name, but that instead honors him and gives him glory and witnesses well to any and all spectators. God is good. Great is Yahweh beyond the borders of Israel. No longer will God say, I have no pleasure in you. Instead, Yahweh will look at his people and be able to say without any hesitation and with all the strength of his voice that shakes the mountains, I love you and you are pleasing to me. That's what Yahweh's going to do when he comes. He's going to refine his people. He's going to make them into a pleasing people. He does it as a refining fire, as fuller soap, right? Fire, fire is scary, painful, dangerous, burns away impurities in silver and gold. It destroys them. And soap, right, this is not body wash, right? This is a lie. Fuller soap, meaning detergent, what you clean clothes with. Washing, too, like a destroying fire, was abrasive, painful. You know, the ancient laundering process involved beating clothes against rocks or with sticks, stomping on them. Washing clothes was not a pleasant experience from the clothes perspective. 
For gold to be purified, it had to be put through fire. For a shirt to be purified, it had to be beaten. God didn't pick these images for nothing. God will purify his people. At times, this will be painful. Recognizing and being convicted over sin is painful. To be confronted with all that you are and all your failure and selfishness and evil is painful. But that pain isn't the end. It is only the means to the glorious end of joy and pleasure, both yours and God's. That's what Jesus is going to do when he shows up. He's going to refine. He's going to wash. And ultimately, those refined and washed are going to rejoice with God. Right? That's, that's part of what worship was. That's part of what the offerings were. Fellowship with God. Remember, for a huge portion of the offerings, you ate the offering. Right? You didn't just burn it up. You ate it. It was a celebratory meal together with God. Coming together to eat a meal with God. To enjoy being welcomed into his presence and to celebrate. That's what Jesus is going to do for his people when he comes. But for some, that fire won't be a purifying fire. There will be no joyful celebration, no eating of the fattened calf together with God at his table. It will be a destroying fire. Fire purifies gold, but it destroys wood. When God draws near, his people will be purified, but also... I will draw near to you for judgment, continuing on in verse 5. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And judgment here means punitive, final judgment. If God is a witness against you in court, you lose the case. The image is developed even more explicitly just a few verses later in Malachi. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. And here in our text, the list of those who experience wrath and final judgment, it's, and who experience hell, it's not exhaustive, but it is intentionally ordered. It's designed to hit home, right? It starts with sorcerers, and the average Israelite would probably be able to react, yeah, sorcerers, get them, God. Good, I don't practice pagan magic. I don't engage in satanic rituals. You go get all those wicked people that do. No problem. Then it moves to adulterers. Okay, now this is a little murkier. God condemned us for our treachery in our marriages earlier. I didn't really think of myself as an adulterer for divorcing my wife, but... Does God? Okay, fuzzy. Maybe I'm in a little trouble. Then it's the ones who swear falsely. Okay, well, I, I do that all the time to benefit myself. I shape my reality and my words to however works best for me, regardless of the damage it may cause or how fair I'm being to others. What? And then and those who oppress the hired worker, well, who doesn't want to make sure that they financially benefit the most in their dealings? Like, who doesn't cut corners a little bit for themselves? Not taking care of the widow and the fatherless, well, that's charity, right? Charity, by definition, can't be required. I mean, we know it's good when you do it, but God can't get mad when I don't go out of my way to do extra good, right? Thrusting aside the sojourner, the visitor, the foreigner, not my friend, the stranger, the one not even part of my own family or in-group, now I'm supposed to care about the people who aren't even my own? God, in this list, indicts everyone And he puts sin in perspective by starting with an obviously offensive evil, sorcery, 
And then moving to things people probably literally did every day, only looking out for themselves and their own. Will God really punish my selfishness and lack of charity the way he will punish a sorcerer? Yes. Yes, he will. Peter does the same thing in a parallel passage describing judgment against sinners in 1 Peter 4. In fact, that whole section of 1 Peter is probably drawing on Malachi. There, Peter describes the fiery trial that both refines God's people and destroys his enemies. And Peter warns, let none of you suffer as a murderer. I'm probably good. A thief. Well, I might have done that a few times. A wrongdoer. Well, just wrong. That's pretty general. Or as a meddler. A meddler. Someone who doesn't mind their own business. God is coming to judge and punish all sin. Not just the sensational sins of those out there but the internal, mundane, acceptable sins inside the heart of every man. The sins that we don't have a problem with. The the evil that comes out of us because ultimately we do not fear God. Not fearing God, right? That's the last thing in the list in verse 5. It's the summary, the root, the thing behind all these other sins. All sin, whether it's sensational to you or common and not really that bad in your eyes, is ultimately a reflection of a rejection of your creator, rebelling against your good father. Not fearing God, not honoring him, not loving him. That is the root of all sin. Our rebellion against God, who is the source and foundation of all that is good, results in every kind of evil there is. And when God draws near in person, he will punish it all because he will be glorified. He will address this lack of fear of his name. He deserves to be loved. He deserves to be praised. He deserves to be honored. And he will be. So that's the message here. That's the message, right? Malachi 2, 17 through 3, 5 in a nutshell. In response to the people's complaining, God is going to come in a visible, tangible way. And he is going to refine some and destroy others. God was faithful to this promise, and he is going to be faithful to this promise. He came in the flesh. Jesus came once to make atonement for his people, and Jesus is coming back to fully purify his people and to cleanse the world. God proved himself faithful to come in the flesh, and Jesus is returning. That's what we're going to confess later in the service when we take the Lord's Supper. He is returning, and when he comes, it's going to go one way. Jesus described his own second coming like this in Matthew. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Jesus refines his people and judges his enemies. He is a refining and consuming fire. And so when we're confronted with this, when we think about the twofold nature of Jesus' arrival, of his ministry, of his return, there's a big question that should be hanging over us at this point. How do I experience Jesus as a refining fire and not a consuming fire. I don't want to be consumed. I want to be refined. What is the difference that decides whether or not I will be refined or consumed? Well, first, we need to take one wrong answer off the table. 
which is shape up your life. Get rid of all your sin. Jesus will save you if you're a good person. So get rid of all your sin. Clean up that life. And you can see that's not the answer because that's what Jesus is going to do, right? He's the refining fire. He will sit as a refiner, purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, refine them like gold and silver so that they bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Those righteous offerings are the result of his refining work. Jesus is going to purify his people from their sins. That's what he does for his people. It's painful, sometimes hard, but Jesus draws near to his people to free them from their sins. So the way that you get this freeing, purifying, refining ministry is not to first free, purify, and refine yourself. Then you wouldn't need Jesus. And the question is, how do you experience the purifying ministry of Jesus, not the condemning ministry of Jesus? The way you experience the purifying ministry of Jesus can't be purify yourself and be pure, and then he will purify you. No, it doesn't work. So the wrong answer off the table. So what's the right answer? What's the right answer? How do we experience Jesus' ministry as purifying? We'll, we'll answer this in two ways. We're going to do this because it's helpful to understand how the Bible gives us multiple, multiple perspectives on the same objective reality in order to give us a, a deep and full understanding of all of God's truth. Two answers this morning that are really both the same answer, but just from two different perspectives using slightly different language. One is, in one sense, random. We'll use this perspective from Matthew, since we already cited Jesus' description of, his, description of his judging ministry from Matthew. Then we'll consider a perspective that arises from the whole inciting issue of our text, the complaint. So we could approach this from another of angles, but we're going to use just these two this morning. Two different answers, but really they're, they're the same answer. So in that passage that we read about the second coming from Matthew, Jesus said the righteous would go away into eternal life. But if you remember back to our study of the kingdom parables in Matthew, Jesus defined righteous not as those who never sinned, but as those who valued the kingdom of heaven, who valued Jesus himself as the king of heaven, those who wanted him, who desired his purifying ministry. Those who want him, get him. Those who value Jesus have his righteousness counted for him. He represents them in the divine court, so their sins will not count against them. And so that when he draws near to them, he doesn't have to destroy them. They can experience the refining that Jesus does for his people. Because they're not counted as sinners, Jesus can come and heal all the sin they do have. So one answer is Jesus' ministry will be purifying to you if you value him for who he is. If you want him for who he is. Lord and King of heaven. That's one answer. We give it mostly as an example to help us flesh out how there is so much depth to the biblical picture of saving faith. But here's another answer you can arrive at by going back to the people's inciting complaint from 2.17 and then meditating on that in the whole biblical context. So remember the complaint. Where is the justice of God? That complaint is what occasioned the whole future look that we've considered this morning. That complaint occasions the justice of God. The Lord is fed up with such complaining. He's going to address it. But isn't it interesting? As we, we noted, just in passing, similar complaint in the prophet Jeremiah's mouth. 
And we hear similar sounding complaints in the lament psalms. Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The wicked prosper at all times. Your judgments are too high out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? My God, why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Those are all direct quotes from the Psalms. The Psalms, inspired prayers, inspired worship songs, breathed out by the Holy Spirit, given to God's people for them to pray and sing. Why is that complaining okay? I mean, awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? That doesn't sound very reverent, does it? Why are God's people given those psalms to sing, but here in Malachi, the people's complaining wearies the Lord to the point that he isn't going to put up with it much longer? There is one key difference between those complaints in the psalms and the complaint here in Malachi. Whom is the complainer talking to? In all the lament psalms, the psalmist is complaining to God. Here in Malachi, the people are complaining about God. Oh, the difference of that little preposition. They are complaining about God to each other, and really only when they're pressed on their own sin. But in the, psalm, the peop- in the Psalms, the people are bringing their complaints to God in an act of faith, talking honestly to God by trusting him to be able to deal with their hurts and sorrows, to comfort, correct, and help them. In the Psalms, the laments are either implicitly or explicitly given in a context of deep, faith and trust in Yahweh, in God. Let me read again one of those quotes, but I'll put a little bit of the wider context back in. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. I mean, he is working out his love for me all day, at all times. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? I say to God, my rock. That is confidence even when the prayer is, why have you forgotten me? He feels like God has forgotten him, but he knows that God is his rock and is working things out for good in his steadfast love all the day. And so he brings his sorrows to God and asks for help. He trusts God. Sometimes we we feel like things don't make sense, but we can be corrected. We can learn and see better and so correct our feelings and then things start to make sense. But sometimes we just genuinely do not understand the purposes of God and his sovereign governing of the world. It is just outside of our ability to comprehend how God manages all things, including evil and injustice, to ultimately good purposes. And when confronted with those things that are totally outside of our ability to understand, we can either complain about God and so move further away from him, Or we can draw closer to him, bringing our confusion and our sorrows and our complaints and laying them at his feet, trusting him to deal with them in his good timing and purposes. 
Remember, the whole issue in Malachi is how the people were failing to be good witnesses to the watching world. They were tarnishing Yahweh's reputation with their costless worship, their unfaithfulness to each other, and their complaints about God. But when people bring all things to God in faith, that is good witness. It magnifies the name of Yahweh. It extols the glory of Jesus. When you pray, when you look at Jesus and say, why did you take my job? What what am I going to do? Jesus, I don't get it. Help me. Why, Why are things so bad in my marriage right now? Jesus, help me. Why are things so broken with my children? Jesus, help why did you take my loved one away from me? Why did you ask me to bury them? I can't go on anymore. Jesus, when that is your disposition, people see and they recognize, oh, they trust Jesus. They trust him. They believe in him. They believe he's worthy to take such prayers to. They believe he can answer. What determines whether or not the fire of Jesus will purify or consume you? The ones who complain about Jesus will be consumed. The ones who trust Jesus and so complain to him will be purified. It's another perspective on saving faith. If you value Jesus for who he is, you will trust him. If you trust him, you won't complain about him, but you will bring all your complaints and hurts to him. Leave them in his hands to deal with because you know he can even though you don't know how. Do you trust Jesus Do you trust him enough so that when the world does not make sense to you, he's the first person you go to? Do you run to him in prayer with all your confusion and sorrow and complaints and anger? If you trust him, you, if you go to him in prayer, even when, especially when the world makes no sense to you, you will find him faithful to deal with all the hurt and confusion. And he will draw near to you and be a purifying fire that removes all your own sin and build you up so that one day you will say with full confidence and untainted joy, great is Yahweh, great is Jesus. If all you really have to say about Jesus is to complain about him, he will destroy you. Figure out what your posture is towards Jesus, because behold, he is coming. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your promise to intercede in history. We thank you for the first fruits of that that we have seen in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We thank you for his priestly ministry on our behalf, the hope of atonement, confidence in it. And we do thank you for the promise that he is coming again and that when he comes, we will, who are his, will see him and be like him, that you will purify all our sins away. And so we do ask that you do this. And we do ask that you would not consume us grant us in all our hurts and difficulties not to complain about you but to come to you bring our complaints bring our confusion our sorrows our anger lay them at your feet trusting you wholly to deal with them we do ask that you we would do this as a church and that you would be glorified by our witness but the surrounding world would see that we really do trust you we ask this all in your name and for your glory amen